0: Good morning, sir. It's great to be with you. And uh, this morning, it was a fun time stepping into the, this space and getting a lot of warm smiles. And You know, it kind of happened a couple times where it was like somebody was like, hey, Morgan, like, how are you? And, like, Doing great. And, you know, we're chit-chatting up. And I'm feeling like, man, my, this church, like, loves me like loves me and my family well. And you know, 30, 45 seconds in the was like, hey, where's Chris and your daughter? And uh, it's like, ah, you know, Chris is still here she wanted to be here, just couldn't make it. like, okay, bummer, like that person kind of takes off. Right? I mean, so really what I'm learning is you love my wife and you wanna meet my daughter and I don't blame you. So what I do have though, is the other serve twinsie. We didn't get to announce him last week. So take a look at the screen. This is Ephraim Christopher Conway, awesome. Uh-huh you can't have Isabel, that you can check out Ephraim. All right, so hang out with the Conways. We're so excited for them and for uh, their young kiddo. All right. Uh, So as we dive in this morning, it it is wonderful to be here with you. And I want to set the stage by simply asking this question. What is a life-altering question you've been asked or you have asked? Start thinking of your life with me, if you just kind of pause for a moment, reflect. What are some of those big questions that really change the direction of your life? It might be something around, we'd like to offer you this position, would you like it, what do you think? It could be one of those questions that you look at a spouse and you say, are we ready to have a baby? Like, like, is it time? I it's a big question. Uh, maybe it's the married question, right? What is one of those questions you've been asked or asked? And often, what I found is that sure, there are some of those big ones that we know, but a lot of times there are little life-altering questions that are prior to those big ones. Uh, one of the most life-altering questions I was ever asked was by a woman named Sarah Sumner. She was a professor at uh, the school I was at for grad work, and uh, she asked a 24-year-old Morgan a provocative question: Would you spend time with her if I was able to get her to visit California. And uh, so I smirked, and I paused, and I said, yes, I'm willing. And those were the famous words that led to a six-day blind date where Carissa came over to California. That led to nine months of distance dating, and that then led to the most altering question I ever asked is that, will you marry me? And so this morning, I want to just kind of raise up the idea of, man, it is hard at times to underestimate the power of a really good question. And so as we navigate the life of Jesus, Jesus asked a ton of great questions. And uh, we're going to come to a passage that's kind of a mini climax as we've been going through the gospel of Mark. It's actually exactly halfway through, and I think the writer Mark did that on purpose. He's taking us towards this mini climax where Jesus asks a question that certainly changed the direction of his disciples' lives. And I believe if we're open to this question, it will continue to change ours as well. So pull out a Bible. There. There's some in the backs of those pews. We're going to have words on the screens. We are going to Mark chapter 8 and beginning in verse 27. And what we're going to do is we're going to navigate towards our big idea this morning. I'm not going to give it up front. We're going to navigate it together through three scenes of Jesus' life with his disciples. Here we go, beginning verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea, Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. All right, so kind of strange. uh, But if we know the context here, Jesus is taking his 12 closest friends to Caesarea Philippi. And that's actually just outside of Israel. It's on the northeastern edge, but it's outside of Israel. translation is, Jesus is taking his disciples on a getaway retreat. Right? He wants specific time with them. He is giving them high access to his life, and he's getting away from the crowds and the masses and hanging out with them. And as they're on the way, he asks this pretty interesting question. like, What are people saying about me? As a good leader, he knows that his followers may have a pulse that maybe he knows and maybe he doesn't. But either way, he's testing them out. What are others saying with me? Now, this is roughly two years or more into the life of Jesus' public ministry. So he was roughly doing public ministry for three years. This is on the back end. He is kind of getting near the climax of his life. And so he's taking the pulse. And what he hears in this, in their response, he's a great teacher, right? He's a great prophet. He's one of the prophets of old. And the master teacher that Jesus was... That's not enough. He wants to hear something more, something more personal, something life altering. And so Jesus ratchets up the heat of the question. He says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And I would argue that this is one of those big questions that Jesus asked in his public ministry. He took lots, but then he takes the pulse of his closest friends. Right? The ones who should know, the ones who have had the behind the scene hangouts, the behind the scene teachings, have literally seen this man's life day and night, been traveling with him, sometimes sleeping out in the countryside with him. I mean, they knew who Jesus was. They had the fullest view. If anyone should have known, it should have been these 12. And I just imagine this scene as if you could hear a, a pin drop in the middle of the dust of the desert. I imagine that in this moment when he asks this question, that you could hear the whistling breeze uh, echoing off the cliffs as he asks because none of the disciples are ready to answer. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've had one of those killer questions asked where you're put on the spot and you aren't prepared to answer. Uh, just this past week, Chris and I were at JCPenney. Uh, we took the kids in and the family to get new family photos and newborn shots of Isabel, right? And uh, I'm sure this must be a part of the strategy at JCPenney, but one of the things is once you go and take pictures, has been a great experience, photographer was awesome, got some great shots, but when you're done, they compile them, the photographer brings you over to the computer and they kind of pitch you on different packages, right? So they show you all the good pictures and pitch you on packages. And so as she comes to the close of her spiel, she says, great, so which one you want to buy and so I look over at Krista and we're like uh, not sure we're not wanting to spend a fortune but also wanting good pictures right and so I asked her hey can we go home talk this over we've heard get back to you and she's like well unfortunately uh, you kind of have to do it now it's like unfortunate for who me or you right I mean like come on so anyways unfortunately we had to go okay let's work through this right now and uh, you know we felt good about what we bought and, and we spent less than what we did on both of our previous voice so we were good but as we're leaving there was kind of this moment, Chris is like buyer's remorse starts to set in, right? It was just a little bit, it wasn't like buying a car when you're not supposed to, but it was a little bit of this buyer's remorse, and she's like, man, I feel a little bit pressured, right? It's like, yeah, kind of, you know I that, mean? That's the way it rolls. I'm sure they, they've got a reason for doing that. But let me tell you what Jesus is doing with his disciples was not buyers remorsing them, okay? They had been walking with him. They're not putting, he is putting them on the spot, Uh, But they had a lot of time to take in the life and the person of Jesus. They were not being pressured to buy a product. What he was doing is a little bit more closer to my question to Krista: will you marry me? Like, what's your relationship to me? Who do you really think I am? What do we need? You know, we're walking together here, dudes and disciples. What do you think about me? And that's what Jesus is doing a lot more closer to. And I believe that everyone, this question is such a profound question uh, that I believe Jesus continues to ask us today. And certainly, this spiritual family of serve, it is a question to say, let's consider the identity of Jesus. Who do you think this man was? And who do you think this man is? And so, one of them actually responds. Verse 29 says, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And this is kind of like a bingo moment, right? Like Peter hits the bullseye here. And often Peter has been very outspoken, you've probably seen that if you've been traveling in the life of Jesus with us through Mark. Oftentimes he's outspoken and wrong, this time he is outspoken and correct. But Jesus warned them immediately not to tell anyone about him, which is a strange response. Last week we we really traveled through this, it's kind of this concept called the messianic secret. There are numerous times Jesus actually tells people, hey, don't say anything yet. And in this reason, we're going to see it following this, because these disciples do not yet have a clue of who the Messiah is or what the Messiah is supposed to be like. Peter gets the right answer, but his concept of what does it mean to be Messiah is off. And it's a fascinating moment because it's the first time in the life of Jesus, according to Mark, that he receives this title. All right, this title, this word Messiah, or the Greek word Christos, means anointed one. And when there's an article in the Greek before it, it's actually a title. Jesus Christ. Christ is not a last name. It's a title. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that the Jews were longing for. And so Peter and the Jews of his days, those who were hoping for this Messiah, they had a concept of a conquering king. A conquering king. They are under rule of Rome, and they are hoping that uh, this Messiah would throw off the powers that be and return them to King David roughly a thousand years before at Israel's height, right? That's what Peter means. He's saying, Jesus, we've watched your life. We've hung out with you. We've done the miracles alongside you. We have participated in who you are and what you're up to. We're ready for the revolution. Like, let's throw off the Romans. Let's get this show rolling, and we're behind you. And so as scene one closes this morning... Jesus is asking us to question, what, what do you think about his identity? Like, who is this man? What is he up to? Because Peter thought he was going to throw off the Romans, a kind of like great, you know, Alexander the Great sort of deal. And yet Jesus is going to define the Messiah path very differently. Look at scene two. Verse 31, he began to teach him that the Son of Man, a title Jesus used for himself, must suffer many things... And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, have you ever had your bubble burst? Have you ever had your expectations completely missed? I mean, what could be more different? Peter says, you're going to be a conquering king. That's what he means. Political revolution. Jesus says, you know what? Actually, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer a ton. I'm going to die, right? And uh, this is a big deal because Jesus has butted heads with these people groups, right? The elders and chief priests and teachers of the law. But what we need to know is Jesus' disciples at the time, most of them, some of them would have hated those people groups, but most would have looked up to them. Right, the elders, chief priests, lot. Like these were the religious authorities of the day. And so this would have been a really hard truth to take in. Worse, he starts talking about his death. Like, hold up, Jesus, you're supposed to win over Rome. Like, that's what's supposed to happen next. This is not part of the plan. And so Jesus does talk very clearly. Hey, I'm actually going to rise again. But they can't take it in, right? He teaches openly, and yet they have no clue because they can't take it in. They are shell-shocked. And listen what Mark says happens next. Jesus spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. So the tables have turned, right? Mr. Bullseye becomes the guy who's correcting Jesus. Uh, I don't know about you, rebuke usually isn't a word we use a ton in our culture. I mean, sometimes simply means charge or correcting sharply right? Like it's a zinger moment. There's some force behind it. There's some serious authority. Now, I don't know about you. I don't really know the last time you've been rebuked, if you will. Uh, an infamous one for me would have to go back to my senior year of high school when me and my brother and a few of our friends would cause some trouble. Uh, you see, on times, what we would do is we'd find ourselves climbing up on the top of my roof, and uh, of my parents' roof, and throwing water balloons at cars that would pass by my house, right? Real cool thing to do. And uh, sometimes, not only would we do that, we would drive around in our car and get in the left-hand Turn lane, you know, five of us. And uh, so as I turn left, you know, people are throwing water balloons out the window as we get away. And so, needless to say, we got in a couple of car chases, which were rather exhilarating as a 17 and 18 year old. Uh, but then, here's, here's the rebuke moment. So, there was this night where my dad walks through our home, uh, our, back into our home after taking my dog Oreo for a walk. And he goes, Hey, Morgan and uh, my dad's not super confrontational and he's pretty intense at this moment. I'm like, what? And he says, do you know what our neighbor just said to me? No, dad, I don't. And uh, he says, my neighbor just said, if you don't uh, tell your kids to stop throwing water balloons at my car, I'm going to throw this bleep, 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 bleep brick through your window as he was holding the brick in his hand. I'm like, oh, I am dead. Like, I am so dead. And he says, this will stop now. Yes, sir, Dad. And I don't think I've ever in my life called my dad, yes, sir, except for that moment. It was a very stern rebuke in that moment. And guess what? I haven't, sadly, I haven't thrown water balloons off the top of my house. I'll admit in high school it was really fun. I'm not going to lie. But I stopped at this moment. This is some of what Peter is doing to Jesus. Like, I don't know what that stern rebuke looked like. I don't know if there were some expletives involved. I don't know if Peter's, like, pulling out the Hebrew Bible and saying, like, look, Jesus, I said you're the Messiah. You took that in for me, right? You told me not to say anything, but you received that. Like, let me tell you what the Messiah looks like, Jesus. That's what's going on in Peter and Jesus' interaction." And whatever that aside was, it wasn't very far away from his disciples. Because as we continue reading in verse 33, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter.
1: Get behind
0: me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Because we've got 11 men with their jaw dropped, right? Like Peter has basically chewed Jesus out, and, and now Jesus said, Hold up. Like, you don't get this. And he turns and rebukes him. Instead of cowering, Jesus tells him and gives probably the strongest rebuke of Jesus' ministry. There's a couple that might uh, be near it, but he says, Get behind me, Satan. And uh, we've talked about this before, but if you think Jesus is Mr. Rogers, he's not. All right? There are times when Jesus really steps in and says, Look, this is not okay. And as funny as it might sound, what Peter was wrestling with is something that I believe we regularly wrestle and struggle with as well. Uh, We often get hurt or frustrated. Some of us even end up leaving the faith. We'll often get angry with God because we cannot grapple with the ways of God. Like his thoughts are beyond our thoughts, his ways are beyond our ways. Oftentimes we try to box God in. And we get frustrated at what God is up to. Oftentimes we will filter God and what he wants to do through our conceptions and concerns rather than his. Oftentimes we will miss the way that God wants to move even in and through pain, challenge, trial, and yes, even death. That is what Jesus is telling Peter. You see, we want a conqueror too. And Jesus says, guess what? like I'm a sufferer. Like I am a sufferer. And so maybe Jesus or Peter's tirade was so loud and obtrusive. Because as the story continues, as we move to scene three, uh, somehow a crowd has formed. Even though Jesus is trying to run away from all of that and get his disciples away, a crowd has suddenly formed. And so Jesus is going to get to now the heart of what we need to hear today. It says in verse 34 He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes into his Father's glory with a holy this is a major speech of Jesus. And I would argue it might be in that like top 10 list, if you will, I mean, it's hard to say anything isn't important that Jesus said, right? But I would still say this, this might make the top 10 list. And so what I wanna offer right now is maybe the first part of our big idea. And the first part is this, Jesus asks his disciples for everything. And in the life and ministry of Jesus, I think we can often soften Jesus' words. I think we often do that. And I would want to argue, I'm I'm hoping this morning that that we shouldn't, right? I'm asking that we wouldn't do that. It's unfair to him. It's unfair to the high bar and the high challenge that Jesus brings to those who are followers because we start to tame the untamable God when we do that. And so here's the ask. Here's my part is I'm not going to soften what he says here. I'm going to do my best to not do that. All right. And I would ask that you would hang in there emotionally. All right. I want to ask that if you're saying, whoa, like I'm ready to check out. I'm ready to glaze over or I'm ready to start starting to relativize. Right. Like did Jesus like really mean those things? Like I'm going to ask, would you hang with me? Because if we can do that and not check out on the other side of it is really great news. Like it's actually really great news. There is some life altering freedom. So hang with me. Alright, let's walk through it together. It says in verse 34, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. And so these words, deny, and take up, and follow, are all All Alright, so they're not nice suggestions, right? They're not like, hey, you might want to do this, it's not that. So they're command words. And uh, he does begin with this open invite. Hey, whoever wants to be my disciple. And this word wants is really much more like desires, longs for. Jesus is speaking to the aspirations and hopes, the affections and and, and those sorts of things, right? If you would long to follow after me, here's the cause. It's your whole life. It's everything right? Deny yourself. He uses one of the highest bars possible. It means to disown or renounce, or repudiate or disregard. It means to place Jesus as the highest allegiance of our lives. And yes, in our kind of self-centered, narcissistic, self-fulfillment type of culture, I mean, th- this is a strong teaching against a, a lot of Western secular ideology or-, or thought. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, I will not be second to anything and anyone. And right? he's saying, I-, I must be first. Jesus then says, take up your cross. And those disciples really would have got this a little bit more than us. We can kind of like, uh, you know, metaphorically think about this. But guess what? The disciples knew as soon as he said, like, hold up. Like, that's the way that the Romans kill a ton of people. Like the Romans used the cross as a death symbol, as a a device of torture, right? This is one of the most common ways that Romans would kill people. Those who were threatening the empire, those were traitors, the people they particularly disliked, often they would die hanging on a cross. And this was a very slow and painful death, usually took a few days. Uh, When you are hanging up there, you usually die of either thirst, hunger, or uh, losing your breath, exhaustion, and, and then you suffocate. Uh, when you hang on the cross, as they constructed it, you couldn't breathe, and so what you would have to do is actually pull yourself up, which would be ripping those nails in your wrists and, and pushing up off uh, your feet just to get a breath, and then falling down, up down, up and down, and that would go on for hours and hours. It was a painful, excruciating way to die. In that moment, the disciples would have thought of those hated Romans, and they would have who are killing people left and right, thousands uh, in the year throughout their empire and saying like, man, Jesus is saying to follow him is like bearing the weight of your own death instrument that they would often have to times carry out to their death side, right? It only amplifies the first statement that he made. And then finally, Jesus commands the princesses to follow him, right, to follow him. And it means to come seek after me and walk and follow in my ways. And so when we follow Jesus, what we're doing is we're making a decision to follow through, moment by moment, day by day and week by week and year by year by hearing his teachings and learning to walk in them obediently it's not just about gathering up information about jesus uh it's actually about learning to follow him and, and experientially trusting jesus and his worldview and the things that he is up to it's where we actually start to, when we hear that jesus is love your enemy pray for those who persecute you and, and we don't want to do that and that's painful to even consider we learn to get on a knee and ask god to help us live his ways instead of our own when jesus says if we don't forgive others we won't receive god's forgiveness that when we have horizontal blockage in in forgiveness it causes vertical blockage in god's forgiveness down to us we learn to say wow god would you help me forgive somebody who has wronged me when jesus tells us to love and and, and to prioritize the materially poor to serve, to listen with, to value, to bring dignity, and, and to bear the weight, even if just only a small amount, to walk alongside them. We learn to do that. And so following Jesus is this lifelong process of walking in a relationship with him and taking on all that he says for us to do and all that he says for us to become. And what I believe when we take this verse as a whole, it moves us to this, this proclamation that says, Jesus is Lord. Right? This, this early Christian proclamation is a defining thing that got many other Christians killed to say Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not anyone else. And this proclamation was and still is the central Christian proclamation of identifying with Jesus. It is a call to no longer compartmentalizing our life. Like, hey, Jesus, you can have these parts of my life, but these ones over here are mine. He says no to that. Jesus is Lord over everything. All right. So there's me trying not to water down what Jesus says. I hope we're seeing the, the whole life cost of discipleship. And some of us might be like, "Like, no thanks, Jesus. Like, I, I need to figure something else right now. You might be feeling that way. Uh, hang in there. Jesus did not end his teaching with this statement, although it's probably the most crucial statement. He doesn't temper the statement, but he does share how this all out can actually bring freedom and salvation. Because he continues by saying this, for whoever wants, remember the same way he started, for whoever wants to save their life, Will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so Jesus is both Lord, but he's also Savior, right? That's what Peter proclaimed. You're the Messiah, you're the rescuer, you're the one who restores us into relationship. So he's claiming whole life authority, but he's claiming authority also to bring life, to bring rescue, to bring salvation in the here and now on this earth and in the one to come as well. And so yes, the cost of discipleship could not be any higher, and yet the reward could also not be any higher. Salvation. And and what he starts to lean into, Jesus does, is actually the cost of non-discipleship, right? So you have the cost of discipleship, but also the cost of not becoming an apprentice of Jesus. He says that we risk losing our lives. And he follows that up with these rhetorical questions. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And so he points us to what's most important. It's not our careers, right? It's not what we may or may not accomplish. It's not the idols and power and pleasure and popularity. Like Jesus says your soul is more valuable than, than anything else. Like who you are in in the essence of your being and who you are becoming is most important. And so Jesus reminds them that day of that truth and he reminds us of that right now if we can take it in. How much God values and loves and has compassion towards all people. Because it's in this moment that we can complete our big idea which is simply yes, Jesus asked his disciples for everything because Jesus actually gave everything. Like that is the good news. That Jesus asks for everything, but as Messiah, what he's doing, and the reason why he had the path of sacrificial death, of suffering, of rejection, of all those things, is because he saw people in all our fractured, uh, broken realities, in our foolishness, in our sinful separations from each other, in God and from the land, in our, our impoverished state. And instead of God walking away from that, he actually moves right into it. He says, I will bear the weight of this. I will take upon the suffering and the pain and the injustices. This is the heartbeat of the gospel. That God would come right into the middle of that. So freedom and wholeness and hope could actually have the last word on things. So that forgiveness and mercy could be really and actually uh, unleashed into the world. So that there's an invitation for you to experience true and rooted identity, not based on what you might or might not accomplish. So that justice for the oppressed and marginalized can happen in part here and now. But man, we know that it is not cinched up yet. But Jesus will cinch that up. he will make all the wrongs right. And so he comes and gives his life so that anyone who would follow Jesus enters into the eternal loving family of the living God, right? This is what Jesus came to do and he gave his life for that. And so the good news flows out of seeing how high and radical the cost is to follow God, recognizing that we cannot attain the life Jesus is fully after. And yet, in and through the person of Jesus, we recognize that Jesus alone actually obeyed the Father fully. And he did that on our behalf. And so he denied himself, Jesus did. And he literally picked up a cross and walked it out to his death side. And he gave his life for you and for me and for the whole world. And so the real question is how will we respond to that? How will you respond to that in these words here this morning? And so I wanna offer just a few steps. I'm gonna offer a few thoughts as, as we kind of land the plane here. The first is whatever you do and wherever you are at in your spiritual journey, I would argue that this question of who do you say I am is worth the most heartfelt and continual exploration. Like I believe this is one of those life altering questions. And I would argue from the words of Jesus, don't take it lightly. Like Jesus is inviting for you to consider him. And you might be here and you might be unsure of where you th- what you think about this Jesus guy. You might be unsure about God and faith and a whole lot of things. You may come with a lot of hurt and previous hurt and previous baggage on institutional religion and, and people who have backstabbed and, and those sorts of things. And I, I want to apologize. I want to say I'm sorry that's been a part of your story. I realize that's been a part of a lot of people's stories. My humble hope with that, though, is that if you've experienced that, that you would be able to, to kind of pause for a moment and say, hey, that is still slightly different, although we're supposed to be representatives of this Jesus. There's still a difference between the way we might be hurt through institutional religion and what it means to explore the person Jesus of Nazareth and to come to grips with who we believe he is. Because Jesus says our souls are on the line, like our very well-being. And, and this is not just speaking about heaven. It certainly involves that. But I need you to know when Jesus talks about the soul and, and about what can happen, like the life that he wants us to live, it actually begins here and now. And so it's not just about uh, the next life. It is certainly about that as well. Does that make sense? But it matters here and now. And so I'm praying that God would bother us this today and this week. What do you really believe about this week? The second thing, don't tame Jesus, all right? This is more of a heart posture than than an action step, but but it's an action of the heart and and, and the mental attitude. Like, what is our posture towards Jesus? And I really wanna encourage us, don't tame Jesus. Uh, Jesus, it's vital that we would understand that because he doesn't want us to tame him down because when we tame him down, we tame down our response to him and, and, and the taming ends up becoming a boring, nice Christian, compartmentalized, kind of nominal thingy. Uh, and there's really not a whole lot that's inspiring about it, to be honest. Uh, Jesus did not move his life to suffer and to die and to sacrifice his life on the cross uh, that we might come to church a couple times uh, a month. Right? Like, that's, that's not what he's calling for. Uh, it's not enough that he would die that we would, hey, find some good friends and be cool with our life and Checkmark, we're good. Uh, That's not it, right? Jesus died for so much more than that. And yes, we talk lots about how we should find depths of friendship. And we do gather to celebrate and it's forming our hearts and our minds like it is good, right? But it's not, that's not it, right? It's not enough. It's not the vision that Jesus launched 2,000 years ago. So do not settle for a tame Jesus or a comfortable nominal form of following him. Like Jesus wants more. And then hopefully third, most tangibly as far as action steps. Jesus invites us into this life. If we're going to walk that road of denying ourselves and picking up our crosses and following him, I would say we're going to run into these what we call continual come and die moments. All right, they're called come and die moments. And it's these moments where, hey, are we going to surrender? Are we going to deny ourselves and go, or are we going to go our own direction? These come and die moments are any and all moments where we simply say, here's how I'd like to be living my life. Like here I am going down my road. And and we run into something where it's like, whoa, Jesus says something different. Like Jesus's ways are different than this. And so we have this collision, right? We have this tension we go, which one am I going to choose? Which one will win out after the wrestling match in our hearts and our minds and our actions, right? These come and die moments are usually very mundane. They're very simple. There are things like when a spouse asks you to do something you don't want to do. <laughs> are you gonna come and die or are you gonna keep living to yourself, right? That's, that's the idea. When Jesus and the scriptures as a whole talk a lot about our financial well-being and this investment into the kingdom and into what God wants for this earth or hey, am I gonna continue to hoard? Like am I gonna see my finances as mine or is everything really God's and I'm simply a steward of all that I have that all that I've been given? It's a mundane and painful moment when a friend backstabs you, right? And it's hard and it hurts. And we want to hold on to the ways we're going to say, nope, like I'm not letting that person back in. And God is beckoning us to forgive and to begin working through reconciliation. Will I come and die to what I would do on my own or am I going to lean into what God wants for me? It's the moment when you know you've wronged someone. And Jesus asks us not just to pray to God, forgive me for that thing. But to actually approach that person and say, look, I need your forgiveness. Like, I messed up. And to own that. And so these are not easy things by any means. That's why they're called come and die moments. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel the pressure of them often in my own home when I don't want to do something uh, that I'm supposed to, that I know with Jesus' help I'm supposed to do. And we ask God through his power and through his grace to die to ourselves. Because do you know what happened when that happens? The kingdom of God crashes in. Right, the life and person of Jesus takes hold more fully. Heaven starts to take place just a little bit more here on this earth. And the person and presence of Jesus is more birthed in you in those moments. And so my hope is that this week, you would lean into some of the come and die moments that will just naturally present themselves. You don't have to go running after them like life's trials and circumstances, just real things. Will come at you. And so, my hope is that we could even just leave with uh, this from a hero of the faith named Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a story around him. Uh, Bonhoeffer coined the phrase called cheap grace. And his story, uh, his life, is really a powerful example in many ways of an authentic, costly faith rather than cheap grace or cheap faith. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian in Germany, and and he pastored during the rise of Hitler and going in and through World War II. And uh, Bonhoeffer saw that many of the other German Protestant churches uh, really welcomed and kind of enmeshed themselves with Nazi ideology. Sadly, there were lots of churches that were kind of right behind Hitler and even helped him in in, in what he was up to. I mean, it's a total co-op, right? It's this lack of a Jesus is Lord reality. And so a month before World War II ended, Bonhoeffer actually found himself being executed amidst his attempts with some people to overthrow Hitler. His outspoken opposition got him killed in uh, one of the concentration camps. His apprenticeship to Jesus and the ways of Jesus got him directly killed. And uh, arguably in his greatest work called The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer says this. He says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, it's communion without confession, it's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace. It's the treasure in the field. For the sake of it, a person would go and sell all that they have. It's the pearl of grace uh, great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, right? Jesus is the Lord, for whose sake a man will pluck out his own eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets or her nuts and follows after Jesus. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a person must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ, the one who gives it. It is costly because it costs a man or woman his or her life. And it is grace because it gives that person the only life there really is. It's costly because it condemns sin. And it's grace because it justifies the person who has sinned. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son who were bought at his price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Thanks for checking in to the Serve Community Church podcast. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, check us out online on social medias like Facebook or Instagram or at our website at servecc.org.